0: Really unleashing potential, you know, for the human mind.
1: Welcome to Geneva's Geeks. I'm Meg Riggs, the host of this episode, and a member of the public diplomacy team at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva. For today's podcast, I am joined by three experts who spend their days and sleepless nights thinking about how to put data to work so that we can all be better prepared for disasters. Geneva is home to the United Nations Office for the Disaster Risk Reduction the World Meteorological Organization, and the Group on Earth Observation. Together, they create a gravitational pull for experts around the world to collaborate and to innovate, making us all safer. But before we jump into our discussion, listeners should know that our guests who participate in this podcast do so in their personal capacity. They are volunteering their time. The views and thoughts and opinions expressed belong solely to the discussant alone, and do not necessarily represent the official position or policy of their employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. That is the end of our boringly necessary legal disclaimer. Before we get started, I want to thank the United Nations Information Service for making available to us the historic League of Nations radio studio. Now, dear guests, if you would please introduce yourselves. What do you do, and where are you from?
2: My name is Dennis McLean. I'm head of communications for the UN Office. disaster risk reduction based here in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm from Ireland originally.
3: Hi, my name is Stephen Ramage. I am Head of External Relations at the Group on Earth Observations and I am from Scotland. My name is
0: Barbara Ryan and I'm the Director of the Group on Earth Observations Secretariat here in Geneva, Switzerland and I am from Dalton, New York.
1: Tell us why your agency is based here in Geneva and what's the benefit of being here? How does that tie into what the kind of conversations that are happening in this space?
2: Well, well, Geneva is the humanitarian hub of the world, really, and the centre for a lot of development issues. Uh, it gives us easy contact with some of the key UN agencies that we depend on to carry forward our agenda, which is basically reducing disaster losses around the world. So we're in close contact with agencies like uh, GEO, you know, for Earth Observations, Uh, the UN Office for uh, Humanitarian Affairs, uh, etc. So there's a lot of points of contact for us. And also it's a very good hub for diplomatic representation. In fact, after this, I'll be going to give a presentation on the global platform for disaster risk reduction to the monthly meeting of the UN support group, which comprises all the uh, diplomatic missions based here in Geneva.
0: So if we go back to about 2005, mm-hmm. when the largely industrial nations got together and said, you know, we've got some wonderful examples where Earth observations, any observations about the Earth, you know, from space, on the ground, in the ocean, any observations can actually feed into um, decisions that mm-hmm. uh, governments, the private sector makes and um, they wanted to pick a neutral location for standing up an organization to start integrating earth observations that governments around the world make. And Geneva was selected as that neutral organization globally, location globally.
1: And how many countries are participating in sharing their data?
3: Uh, the, I think the number of countries at the moment is 104 including the European Commission, which brings mm-hmm. in a lot of the European countries. There's a nice synergy between the countries that are involved in being in Geneva as well because of the UN being here and all the member states. So to join GEO, you actually have to be a recognised UN member state. So the good thing about Geneva for us is being able to walk up to the Pali, which is a 10-minute mm-hmm. walk, and I can meet the UN Economic Commission for Europe, I can meet UNISDR, I can meet UN OCHA, can meet Unisat. You know, we can we can talk with all of these organisations who are trying to do things that are informed by Earth observations, mm-hmm. and we wouldn't be able to do that probably even in Brussels or, or other major cities, Paris. It would there would be one or two organisations, but Geneva probably gives us closer to a dozen, mm-hmm. m- maybe even fifteen types of, you know, those types of organisations. The way Geo works is the the member the the member countries will send a technical expert. So for land cover, it's someone from NASA from the US. For uh, climate, it's someone from Germany from the weather service. For data sharing, it's someone from China. So all of my colleagues are from all over the world, and that brings a really different perspective to working. And we all think very differently, which is good because it, you know, quite often. You know, if I was sitting with three other sort of Brits, we would probably think fairly similarly. And even the Americans, I think, sort of think similar to the Brits or we think similar to you, however you look at it. Um, But when you have people from the other, the complete other side of the world who, you know, if they're coming from Asia Pacific, they are the disaster capital region of the world. So they know what it's like to suffer earthquakes, tsunamis, all of these things all the time. Whereas for us, it's not such a common thing. So having that mix of experience and cultural input is, is really, really valuable, I think.
1: And it also helps you translate for assumptions. I think the one thing that you learn when you do international work is how many assumptions are built into your objectives based on your culture. And then when you try to like do it with another group and you both come back and you have completely different things, though you followed the instructions that were written pretty closely, you have to be working together to understand what's not said.
0: Yeah. Where we see that a lot is just engagement with the private sector, because uh, yeah. there are some parts of the world where the private sector is quite robust. There are others where it's emerging. Um, mm-hmm. and so uh, lots of different perceptions
1: about what that engagement strategy means. I think if you're in a developing country, you could ask young kids and they could say, yes, UNICEF did that here at our school, and Unifam built that, you know,, uh, OBGYN clinic over there like you could they can make these connections between this investment and the real tangible results in their lives but if you go to Ohio in the United States and ask them how has the UN improved your lives I could now give you after three years many examples of how the UN every day impacts Americans lives but Americans have no idea they take it for granted it kind of comes out of the ethos And I would
3: say that parallel is probably true for a lot of Western Europe as well.
1: Absolutely. And we don't understand that why when we mail an old-fashioned mail from Ohio to Scotland, why does it get there? Oh, you need the UN to create that mail system that connects those spaces. Why can you dial phone numbers and have it work internationally? How our data does go into anticipating a hurricane in Florida. It might not just be American weather systems, but it's global weather systems that are looking in that. And so there's lots of ways. The negotiation for the satellites that are in the sky, who can use them, what's the bandwidth for those? And someone has to make those decisions or else it comes down to conflict. And the goal is to avoid the conflict and come up with solutions that work for everyone. Why did your agency come to exist? What was the problem it was hoping to solve?
2: Well, in the in the 80s, they had the International Decade for Disaster Reduction, which was uh, formulated basically because there was a sense that You know, humanitarian operations were becoming huge, more needed to be done on prevention, reducing the need for humanitarian emergency relief operations. And there was a feeling that more could be done, particularly to reduce loss of life in major emergencies. You recall that in the 1990s, we lost, for example, 140,000 people in Bangladesh in a cyclone, which was well forecast, etc. So it seemed uh, quite uh, astonishing that so many people could lose their lives in those circumstances. The UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction was formed in 1999 and since then we've been very focused on reducing loss of life, reducing the numbers of people affected by disasters and reducing economic losses and these issues are now formulated in an international agreement called the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction which was adopted by all UN member states two years ago and so, in the last two years, we are relentlessly pursuing the seven targets outlined in that uh, particular framework agreement. And the first one of those is to reduce loss of life, reduce mortality, which means using, you know, earth observations, etc., and other methodologies to, you know, understand where where exposure is growing in the world, you know, and wh- what we can do then to focus efforts to reduce that exposure to disasters.
3: The countries have to respond to the Sendai framework for disaster risk reduction. They've Mm -hmm. got the Paris Agreement for climate change, but they've also got the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of an artificial barrier between them all Mm -hmm. in terms of organisations, but in terms of the reporting and in terms of how the world actually works, there there are no barriers. All these things are interlinked. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big area for us to address. And I think that's one of the unique aspects of the Group on Earth Observations is that we're probably one of the few organizations looking across the three areas. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of cross-cutting, making sure the data all matches up.
3: We
0: have just one other um, kind of tagline that goes along with that. And we say, you know, countries have borders, earth observations don't. And so much of the data that's collected, you know, the earth behaves as a system, doesn't Mm -hmm. necessarily reflect or respect political boundaries, and so we want to just make sure that whatever data is out there is in fact responding to how the earth actually behaves.
1: When I first arrived in Geneva, one of the first projects that my office worked on was a video for your office, and I remember and saying, what's geo, and why do we care, and where is this going? And I was amazed to learn, one, how much data the United States collects on weather globally. And had been collecting for a long time because it impacts our military interest, impacts our economic interest. Like we have a reason to need this information. And it was a way to provide and share that information with the rest of the world in a public use way. And what an amazing way of making sure that that resource doesn't just end on a shelf in yeah, somebody's office. Yeah, no,
0: weather is a, a wonderful example in that regard because um, you need all, you need national participation from those individual weather bureaus or weather mm-hmm. services to share data, an international organization to help coordinate it. That's largely the responsibility of WMO. But again, going back to the genesis of GEO, why do we only have that end-to-end system in weather? Right. How come we aren't seeing those, those same connections of Earth observations all the way to decisions in agriculture, in energy, in water, in biodiversity, in disasters. And so that goes back to also the genesis of the group on Earth Observation.
1: And I keep thinking about disasters in general. So much of what, I think from an American perspective, the UN does is helping the poor. And so Americans today are questioning, well, what's their value add? The disadvantage of disasters, I don't want to say the benefit, that's the wrong word, is that this does impact everyone. And frankly, this is an area that there's no country that's left out of this. We all have a stake in the outcome.
0: I think there's that's exactly right. And there's one other um, element just from an asset perspective. If we look at those Earth observations that are collected from space, the polar orbiting satellites are collecting data all over the Earth, mm-hmm. not just over their individual country. Mm-hmm. And so the, again, uh, long tradition of uh, broad open data sharing in the United States and growing elsewhere around the world um, is a key uh, is a key asset. It's just like if it was used more fully around the world, it's like having an investment, mm-hmm. making an investment in another place mm-hmm. in a less developed nation.
3: But but the, also the impact of disasters now is not just within one area a disaster in indonesia will could impact the whole world because of the knock on effects mm-hmm. and i think that's what people are starting to understand is that this really is a global issue and mm-hmm. everyone needs to work together and so and climate's the same you know it's not just happening in mm-hmm. one small place and we have to target it
1: so multilateral diplomacy is a long game. Yes. What are some kind of successes or wins in the last year that you're proud of, kind of the progress? Well, made? personally,
2: what stands out for me was uh, the, the Indian government adopted for the first time a national disaster management plan. And the Indian prime minister, uh, uh, Mr. Modi, uh, welcome to Sendai framework and he said this plan was based on the priorities for action in the Sendai framework and we see clear evidence now that of India's commitment to delivering on that at a very at the very local level in fact in just 2 weeks time from now, from now they will have a national platform for disaster risk reduction meeting for you know on one of the first occasions since this announcement to actually work out in detail what it is they can do at the local level down to the very to the village level to reduce disaster losses and to increase uh, the culture of risk reduction across India.
3: We have this global Earth Observation System of Systems, GEOS. Mm-hmm. I'm watching what's happening around the world in the regions. And afri which is the African GEOS, mm-hmm. um, has, has been successful. It's been coordinated out of the GEO Secretariat in, in Geneva um, by my colleague An- and this one Lisa. And that's worked really well. And I think um, then we had AmeriGeos, which is doing the same for the Americas and, and having a great level of success and doing a lot of outreach and really, really starting to, to, to have good recognition. And then there's AOGeos, so Asia Oceania Geos. Mm-hmm. And that's coming. And, then, and now we're looking at having a Himalaya Geos. Mm-hmm. So those regional activities are really starting to ramp up. And so people are taking ownership, leadership, and really starting to push the geo mindset and concept all around the world. And so when UNICEF presented it the data provider they said, you know, we're unleashing the power of geos for the benefit of every child. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's a massive message because if they can use that information to inform their decisions that that help with the development of children or even saving lives during a disaster or however they use it, that that's kind of to me that's yeah. kind of job done for us. That's that's you know, we're delivering against mm-hmm. the original intent of of geo
0: but localizing it, throwing lo- it back lo- down. And localizing really it. Important cause that's important uh, because many times that's where these decisions are made, uh-huh. are very local. Um, and so the fact that they could use regional land or global information to inform those decisions is important. I think another key access has been really further development of an initiative we call GeoGlam, Geo's Global Agricultural Monitoring Effort. And this is where the G20 agricultural ministers back in 2011 came and said, you know, we think you've got earth observation data that could help inform agricultural markets. Could you pursue a relationship with AMOS, the Agricultural Marketing Information System? This is a unit um, that's uh, in Rome, associated but not part of FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization, But they are the entity that starts putting prices on global Mm -hmm. crops. And so for four major food crops, wheat, rice, soy, and corn or maize, Geo's data from GeoGlam is now being fed in on a monthly basis Mm -hmm. to Amos to help set prices for uh, those four major food crops. So global price
1: Mm -hmm. is for that. And um, And I think for people who haven't worked in places where that matters, um, if you're in a developing country where you've got, you know, women who are farming corn in the Sahel, you know, African desert, they need to know when they can show up and sell their corn and get the real costs and in the past there's always been these massive fluctuations right. of everyone shows up at once so that they the, the price drops these women who barely get by anyways don't get what their corn is really worth but if they're able to track that over time and we were watching like women from the village track it on their phones mm-hmm. so that they could make sure that they actually got you know the most amount of value yeah. out of their yeah. corn so they could actually you know educate their kids and so there's a real direct connection between understanding the market yeah, for absolutely. these grains but,
3: yeah. but i mean again in terms of linkages Look at food security and being able to forecast that. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that links massively to disasters again. I mean, right. it's a, another type We think type of, of disaster, disaster,
1: disaster as a hurricane, but the reality is if you don't have food, that's yeah. a disaster. Exactly. Absolutely.
3: Exactly. And we actually have a call for applications at the moment where people can take the free... Like the and open, design apps. Yeah, on top of the data that we pr- freely provide we had a small company called uh, development seed from dc who built uh, an artificial intelligence voice recognition system on top of siri where they just spoke to siri and they said we'd like to see earth observation for this period for this region and this type of earth observation data and up popped the data so you know there's some really exciting stuff happening
0: same thing that Dennis commented on, many investments are being made by the private sector and they're a key part of this ecosystem. And so as we advocate for broad open release of government data, the private sector has a key role to play to come in and Uh, design these apps Mm -hmm. that you talked about for farmers uh, out in the field, uh, or just value-added products and services that can be built
1: on broad open data that taxpayers have already paid for. In the earlier conversation, there was a reference to Bangladesh and that there are people who knew this disaster was kind of headed down the pike, but before there was a mechanism to share that information. I think the big thing that strikes me is that just you have all these people who are pulling in data and just because you have it doesn't mean I know about it yeah. but then after the fact when you go wait a minute you knew the the kind of social response to that is devastating yeah. and so it's kind of shoring up that you have it you have it but I don't how do we make sure we all have the right information
0: that's a big piece. Yeah, it is a big piece. And, you know, I think that's, again, going back to maybe the upcoming Cancun meeting or the UNISDR efforts. That's why it's so, so important because we keep learning this lesson over and over again. I went, read a fascinating book a few years ago called Isaac's Storm, mm-hmm. and it's about the uh, eight turn of the century 1800 to 1900 hurricane in Galveston Mm -hmm. and in fact it's why Houston even exists today because they moved Mm -hmm. upstream from Galveston Uh, but the same thing weather forecasts coming off Puerto Rico said this is going to be a terrible storm and uh, then there were local weathermen in Texas and of course the juxtaposition of Washington and the Mm -hmm. debate and discussion between a field office and headquarters, and just confusion Mm -hmm. about how big this storm is. And to this day, it is the United States, still the United States' most deadly natural disaster, is that uh, Galveston storm in uh, 1890, I guess it was 1898,
1: 1900, right about Mm -hmm. that turn. What is the conference you're working on for right
2: now? Well, the global platform, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about this area of reducing disaster risk is that, you know, ever since the Indian Ocean tsunami in 2004, which claimed over 220,000 lives, the world has met every two years to discuss how it can fine tune its efforts to reduce disaster losses, particularly to reduce mortality. And we've had a lot of success in that area, particularly on, on reducing loss of life. I mean it's a long time now it's many years since we've had what we call a mega disaster in which over a hundred thousand people have been killed I'm not saying that that such an event could not happen again particularly you know when you look at seismic risk across the world but you know by and large governments local governments the private sector other stakeholders are becoming much more efficient much more effective in recognizing what can be done to reduce the risk of loss of life particularly in urban settings uh we're seeing much stricter adherence to building codes much better uh, approaches to land use etc and uh you know generally we can say that we have been successful in reducing mortality but unfortunately in the area of economic losses uh, a lot more needs to be done to to help countries like haiti for example which lost 32 percent of its gdp as a result of hurricane matthew in october 2016 Mm -hmm. Apart from the fact the, the tragedy of losing over six hundred people as well, you know, a country like Haiti can ill afford to lose that kind of uh, that kind of uh, you know suffer that kind of economic loss in in already you know pretty dire circumstances. It's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, and it's still recovering from the twenty ten earthquake, which cost it one hundred and twenty percent of its GDP. So those accumulated losses, you know, make it very difficult to make progress on you know, redu- eliminating poverty and making, uh, you know, making other social gains in uh, a setting like that. So that's why it is so important to focus on disaster risk in low income countries, you know, least uh-huh. developed countries.
0: Well, our goal down there is to continue to reinforce and cement the fact that if you don't bring all the data to the table, you're sub-optimizing your, your design solution. We're working really hard within this community to say, governments, you are investing in Earth observation. You know, until mm-hmm. they start sharing the data more broadly, um, you're not going to c- get a complete solution. You're sub-optimizing the solution. You're undercutting so your private you're, sector, that's a, you're undercutting, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're, um, you're just not using all the, the tools that you have
1: invested at hand
0: in. Yeah, and have already invested in.
1: I think that's one of the big things in my three years here in Geneva is there's a lot that is being built that is really great, but it's that last link that puts the data to work, which is why it's like one of my favorite tag phrases here, yeah. Geneva, putting the data to work. But it's that making sure that all those agencies who've collected all that data actually get it into the hands of businesses or communities that can make those
3: real-time decisions. And there are a number of them, Colombia, Sweden, Mexico, who are looking at integrating Earth observation data with, uh, with their stats. And really, that's really powerful. So that's one set of stakeholders. The other is the civil protection agencies and those working on disaster risk reduction, mm-hmm. whoever like the they are. The equivalent in every country. I, I, exactly. So making them also aware of the availability of the data and the integration possibilities. Now, some of them are a step ahead because they've necessarily had to have that mm-hmm. data to make some decisions, but not all of them. And so as they build their national disaster risk reduction programs, you know, as Dennis was talking about India, then we hope that Earth observations will be a, a key part of that so we we held a meeting uh, for our data providers so we have this what we call the it is basically a portal for open earth observation data and information and the portal has hundreds of millions of resources that are freely available accessible discoverable downloadable all that good stuff but a lot of people still don't know it's there so to your point and so we had almost a hundred data providers who provide into this portal at this meeting in Italy a couple of weeks ago. And even just saying to people, you know, can we put your data in there, was was actually something that had never been done. So there's a lot of people sitting there, and we said, how many of you provide data into the portal? And half the hands went up, and the other half didn't. So even just by doing that, we we suddenly increased the number of people who are providing data. Mm-hmm. Part of the challenge is also making sense of that data. So mm-hmm. if you look at what's happening in Earth observations, there's a lot of talk about big data. So one, just one of our participating organisations, ECMWF, European Centre for Mid-Range Weather Forecasting, they have, they told me they have 158 petabytes, or maybe it was 180. It's some huge what's a number. a It's, well, just think, it's enough data to go around the world several times. Okay. <laughs> and, and that's just one of our or participating organisations, even if you look at organisations outside of Earth observations, um, teleatlas, who drive the world for satellite navigation or for the the sat-nav in your car, they're collecting trillions of pieces of information every day on sensors. So even if we have the information, and even people know it's available, how do we then parse it and make it useful for people to use? Mm -hmm. So how do we break it down and then how do we make it, you know, relevant? for mm-hmm. those people and that's probably the next challenge because i think geo is actually a big success story because we have these hundreds of millions of data resources available now we need to go to the next stage and wonder right how do we go from data and in, to insight or data to knowledge or whatever and then to the decisions yeah. yeah
1: to be yeah. able to make decisions yeah. to yeah. avoid investors i keep thinking mm-hmm. about students grad students how many phd students are out there that Need to be able to dive into this data to be able to do their research to do their findings. Like there's, and they
3: all can. Right, they all can. We just need to yeah. get but it. to We need them to know that they can yeah.
1: plug in and play. Yeah, but if we go back
0: to students in particular, um, in 2007, when the United States changed the Landsat data policy so that all the data from the Landsat satellites would be broadly and openly available, uh, the daily downloads increase two orders of magnitude, 53 scenes a day to 5,700 scenes a day many of whom were students coming in and saying, I no longer have to buy that Landsat scene. I can just ingest it mm-hmm. and extend my study area because, you know, I don't have to use my money to buy data. I can mm-hmm. actually use the money I the get from the National Science Foundation or whoever to actually do my research. And so mm-hmm. there are some phenomenal stories out there. Well, and the other, open data and
3: the other thing for me in terms of if you look at universities and academics and students in many countries those are the people who are informing the governments those are the advisors those are the people who are providing the, as
1: they do their research and they find things that they a, they exactly, flag those exactly. things
3: exactly exactly and or they'll be trusted advisors to the government i've seen this all over the world so we want to keep as well as informing the governments directly and and the ngos and the others working with them the the academic sector is hugely important because they're doing the next level of research. They're also able to compare to look at what's happened in the past.
1: But if you didn't have a central point where people could trust to put in their data and then pull that data out, it would all just be stovepiped. No one would be able to yeah. make those comparisons.
0: Yeah, that's a really important part because for each of these institutions that are sharing their data, and and um, we... we um, it's a it's a brokering technique so it's almost like uh, Uber or Airbnb you know one of the largest <laughs> rental car companies but they don't own a rental car the right, exactly. uh, largest yes. hotel industry but they don't own a hotel room in many ways that's like us it's one of the largest earth observation assets but the data is actually owned by all these organizations that contribute the data mm. But they are, in fact, siloed, siloed nationally, siloed thematically or from a discipline perspective. And it often takes other people coming in and then saying, wow, I'm seeing one pattern over with this data set. And I'm seeing kind of a similar pattern over here and starting to make those connections. And there's just some, I mean, it's, it's really unleashing potential. You know, for the human mind, it's really. But quite I think exciting. it also
3: goes back to the point Barb made right at the beginning about in, on, and around the Earth. So, not only is it one place to go for data, but you you can get soil moisture, you can get groundwater, you can get satellite imagery. So, you can get all the different types of data that together inform the decision, and that's mm-hmm. really important.
1: What is your agency's role in kind of fostering that conversation?
2: Our role in fostering the conversation is to mobilize the world on these issues. We're a small agency, but you know the global platform in Mexico uh, will have five thousand people attending. It will have uh, several heads of state. It will have uh, all the main actors in the UN family will be there. Uh, we'll have lots of NGO participation, lots of civil society participation, and one thing that we're very keen on uh, promoting in recent years is the involvement of the private sector as well. Because after all, you know, some in most countries, 80% of investment decisions are taken by the private sector, and we want that investment to be risk-informed. You know, so the global platform is a great uh, opportunity to move from the commitment to, uh, to implement the Sendai framework, which was adopted two years ago, to action, you know, delivering on action. And, and uh, by 2020, we've set a deadline for, to see a substantial increase in the number of uh, local and national strategies for disaster risk reduction. So Mexico, this gathering in Mexico is very important in terms of mobilizing uh, and, and energizing the base for disaster risk reduction right across the world.
3: For me, it's the community. So we're engaging across multiple disciplines. We have these 104 uh, national governments that we're working with who are all thinking about this and they're all trying to put investments in national disaster plans in place but at the same time we have this uh, almost 110 participating organizations so those are organizations like the european space agency like unisdr Mm -hmm. like the world meteorological organization the world bank and so on and they're all acting there as well so we're in a position to actually see where they're all working and coordinate that through geo and -hmm. it's that kind of coordination or convening Mm -hmm. role that has helped us and probably I'd say more so in the last twelve to eighteen months, because um, I guess just the the awareness out in the market. I want to say marketplace. I don't know how else to describe the ecosystem or whatever yeah. the word is. But there's a much greater awareness now, and it, it's actually for governments
1: like, and companies well, and civil society that it could. But come look together. at you know
3: look at um, what happened in New Zealand. The cost of the the earthquakes in New Zealand is is up in the multi billions. So so they're now completely aware of what they have to do and how they have to rebuild. And so it's in that preparation and, and pre-disaster phase that Earth observations help, but also helps in the post-disaster phase as well and, and in the recovery phase. So we we're kind of going across the whole disaster cycle, if you like. And so mm-hmm. there's a couple of things that help us add value because of our community. Right. So I think that's that's really key, that we bring all these different organisations together with different interests, different areas of expertise and different understandings. So sometimes, you know, one of the things I'm working on at the moment is disaster statistics. And even just agreeing the taxonomy or the the, the way to describe a disaster, a natural hazard, you know, even that, people are struggling to come to terms to speak the same language. Right. So there's a lot of work to be done.
0: I think one other uh, point, and it maybe builds on what Stephen just said from this convening power, Uh, one thing that we spend a lot of time talking about are respective roles and responsibilities. So recognizing that an organization like UNISDR is really in the driver's seat internationally for designing the strategy. And then you may work with WMO, who has largely responsible responsibility for coordination of atmospheric observations. And then working with UNESCO and the International uh, Oceanographic Commission for oceanic observations and other programs for terrestrial observations. What we've really tried to do is recognize those strengths of those organizations and then jump in where the interstices need to be filled in a little bit more. So yeah. it's not duplicating. Uh, it's putting but the data to work. Leveraging their responsibilities, not duplicating it in, and exactly uh, putting the data to work.
1: So, our last question for everybody is always who out there is doing work that inspires you?
3: It is my mother. I'll tell you why. She uh, She worked on a volunteer basis for almost 20 years with people with learning disabilities. And she got so fed up doing that, that she went off and she raised like over a million pounds and built a, a privately run training centre for people with learning disabilities. It was the first in Scotland and maybe even in Europe. And she had a goal of getting people who have like maybe Down syndrome or water on the brain or, or some something that's viewed as a disability into paid employment. And their goal was to get something like 10 people after three years. And they did 45 people in the first two years. And so her kind of tenacity and just she do, she doesn't take any prisoners if you know what I mean, um, but she does it in a nice way. Yeah. And so I'd like to kind of follow in her footsteps. But you know she got a, an MBE from the Queen for work, so it's quite <laughs> it's quite a status to reach for me.
0: If I had to think about it, at least the type of person or organization that kind of really excites me, it's someone that's really kind of challenging either our standards assumptions or the standard or the status quo, like I think what three words did, or just trying to break down science for for citizens to understand. So, you know, it could be somebody like an Elon Musk that has really got some big visions out there.
3: Mm-hmm. So having three words that are easy to remember and easy to pronounce, done a lot of work on the algorithm that produces the combinations of the words, the size of the words that are in there, and you know you have all the small words in the built-up areas or the urban areas, mm-hmm. and then the long words out in the middle of the ocean. So there's a lot of work has been done to make it a really smart system. So they they have fifty-seven trillion three by three meter squares, which give you a, a unique way to address the world.
1: You're in somewhere like you know the Simien Mountains of Ethiopia. It gives you a chance of actually telling a company how to deliver something to you that in other words there's no address Well
3: you can always use latitude and longitude but the problem with lat long is that it's very long strings of numbers and nobody's going to remember,
2: Um, you might get them mixed up. Well there are a lot of people inspiring us this year Um, you know I think uh, you know this year we're focused on target B of the Sendai framework which is about reducing the numbers of people affected uh, across the world by disasters so Key to that is uh, Earth observations. So Geo would be one of the groups that would inspire me because I, guests I, I, in the room. not at all. I, you know, because we're we're very focused now on exposure and how do you reduce exposure? Well, the first thing to do is to understand the extent of that sup- exposure. I mean, this 21st century is the century of the city. You know, we're seeing a breakneck urbanization taking place right across the world, and to understand how that is. Uh, colliding with other risk factors is very important to us you know whether it's climate change whether it's uh, environmental degradation whether it's poverty you know we need to have a good understanding of that and geo is a big part of helping us to get there
1: i can't thank enough dennis mclean barbara ryan and stephen ramage for taking the time out of their busy schedules to be part of this podcast series thank you to the united nations information services sound team at the historic league of nations radio studio For helping us do justice to our guests ideas thank you listeners for tuning in as we explain in the intro to the podcast series each episode will delve into a completely different field collectively they will tell the story of the diverse array of international experts our favorite of geneva's geeks and their innovative collaborations that will impact our future be on the lookout for our upcoming episodes in the coming weeks you can listen to the podcast at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in Geneva website or subscribe on iTunes. Rate us and tell your friends. Tell us your ideas and feedback. We look forward to bringing you into the fold of Geneva's geeky discussions that we couldn't stop thinking about. We hope that you find them as compelling, too.